Well, we want to say happy Mother's Day to all of the moms that are a part of our congregation. And I also hope that it was just a little bit exciting to see some of the little ones uh, in that video that we were able to sort of throw together. I want to thank all the parents who were able to get me those videos so that we can have that little bit of a surprise this morning. Um, We do recognize that Mother's Day in some ways can be a very sort of complicated holiday. We're Some of us may be missing our mothers, you know, maybe some of us had very complicated relationships with our mothers or difficult relationships with our moms, but there are many of us who really just want to honor our moms, Uh, and we are so grateful for them. I want to say happy Mother's Day to my wife in particular as she's watching with our two little ones. She sent me, Paige sent me a text this morning that said that Levi was requesting to go to church this morning, and so she was very saddened, and so am I, to not have them here this morning, but we are grateful together in as best a way that we possibly can. But before we go on, I just wanted to just extend perhaps a little bit of a prayer to our moms this morning, just in honor of them and all of the things that they do for our families and for our community uh, here, not just in our church locally, but broadly in our city. And so I just receive this prayer and blessing over you moms. God, we are grateful for those who give life. (laughs) We're grateful for the ways that they care for us. And we're grateful for the ways that they, they tend to our needs, that they bring joy and enthusiasm into our worlds. And so we ask God that you would continue to sustain and strengthen and empower those women that are a part of our communities that we call mom. Uh, They are such a gift to us in our lives. They're such a gift, not just to their immediate families, but the broader community as well, God. And so we ask that in these days, as so many are homeschooling and working and, and continuing to sort of navigate home life together, that you would equip them and strengthen them for all the work that they are doing. God, would you just bless the moms in particular that are part of Powerhouse Church of the Nazarene. We stand in many ways on their shoulders because of their faith. We are supported by their prayers that so often probably we're unaware of. Uh, But we're grateful for the gift of mothers. We're grateful for what they reveal to us about who you are. And may they continue to do so in our midst. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we're going to be continuing on in a teaching series that we are navigating here uh, for Easter. But actually, I just want to take note of something before I go on, because this is, it's not just weird to be in here right now this morning, uh, because you all are not here. It's very strange in here because there are quite literally no pews in the sanctuary. Yeah, you can pan out if you want, Monica, and show everybody what is going on. Um, and so it's just extra empty here in the sanctuary this morning and just wanted to let you all know that actually what we're doing is we're going to be scraping the ceilings here in the church uh, because we had that water damage over Thanksgiving weekend uh, in November and so we have to repair that and instead of just respraying the acoustic we're actually going to scrape all of the acoustic and asbestos and just smooth it all out uh, so it'll look a little bit different. Um, for you all when you return, but it's just a little stranger than it normally is here on a Sunday morning uh, as we gather together. We're going to be continuing on in this teaching series uh, in which we're exploring these sort of resurrection experiences that 
certain apostles and disciples of Jesus had after his resurrection and after the empty tomb. And this morning we're going to be jumping into a familiar passage in Acts chapter 9, which is famously known or titled Saul's Conversion. Let me ask you a question as we get going. If I served you Coke in a Pepsi can, would you be able to tell? If I served you Coke in a Pepsi can, would you be able to tell that it was Coke and not Pepsi? Well, I'm not sure if you've seen these videos, but there's these videos circulating on the internet of random strangers who are asked about the political candidate that they're supporting in the upcoming election. And the setup sort of goes this way. Uh, An interviewer sort of polls and asks random strangers who they're supporting in the upcoming election. Trump or Bernie, the stranger might say. Uh, The interviewer then claims to give them a summary of that candidate's political platform, like the nuances and specifics of it. The interviewer offers bullet point summaries of a tax plan, a health care plan, a foreign policy plan, and asks them that not just in their support of that candidate, but of the platform specifically, if they appreciate and like or agree with all of the specifics of that candidate's platform. And in the videos, the stranger always, 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 always affirms all of the plans of the candidate they claim to support. But there's only, there's a catch. Is that the interviewer, unbeknownst to the stranger, has presented the summary points of a different candidate and a different platform and just labeled them as the candidate the stranger claims to support. So for example, the interviewer describes Bernie's tax plan, Bernie's health care plan, Bernie's Uh, foreign policy plan, but just labels them as Trump's plans, like drinking Coke out of a Pepsi can. And the stranger universally just affirms, regardless of what's going on, those plans. But as soon as the stranger verbalizes the support of the platform described, it's revealed to them that the platform that they've just been affirming actually belongs to a candidate that they don't support. The Trump supporter finds out that all along in this interview, they've been affirming Bernie's platform, or a Bernie supporter finds out that they've been affirming Trump's platform and agreeing with it. And that's the exact moment the video creators were hoping to capture on camera. They wanted to capture that awkward embarrassment that the stranger would feel when it was revealed that they were blindly following a candidate without really knowing the nuances of what they were supporting. They wanted to capture the discomfort the stranger would experience when it was revealed in a very public way that they don't actually know what they're claiming to know. You know what, that's the video that they wanted to capture because the interviewer doing the interview seems to take almost a sadistic pleasure in confronting the stranger with this embarrassing truth. They claimed to support the taste of Coke, but really they only supported a can. Have you ever been confronted with a truth in that way, in an embarrassing, awkward way? Have you ever been adamant about a belief only to find out that you were wrong all along. My freshman year of college, I was taking an Old Testament survey course. I attended Christian schools my whole life, and I'd been raised in the church, and I frankly thought it was unnecessary for me to take such a class as an undergrad, but it was part of the general 
requirements, education requirements, to take this Old Testament survey class. And I remember the first day of class distinctly that the professor, Dr. Alex Verghese, who, let me just say, is way smarter than me, and I wish I would have known that before the first day of class. But he asked us, just sort of probing about our familiarity or understanding of the Old Testament, this question about the Bible. He said, how does the Bible begin? Easy. I raise my hand. I have the right answer. The creation stories, Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible begins with the creation stories. And then he asked a second question, how does sin enter the world? No one else really seemed to want to participate at this point, so I raise my hand again. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they do against God's commands. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm very smart. In front of all of my peers, I got all of the right answers so far. And then Dr. Varghese went on, and according to the Bible, he asked, where did the serpent come from? Now, we were sort of in a conversation at this point. He wasn't really asking a class. He was asking me. The serpent, I responded, was a former angel who led about a third of the angels in heaven in rebellion against God, and they were cast out of heaven. These were easy Sunday school questions. I thought to myself, there's no reason for me to be in this class. This is ridiculous. If this is the content that we're going to be studying it. But his response to my response made me very nervous. He said, where is that story found in the Bible about God casting Satan out of heaven? I opened my Bible to Genesis, assuming it's in there, right? This is a story I've been told my entire life. It's got to be somewhere between the creation story and the story of eating this fruit, Genesis 3, 4, I don't know, somewhere in there. And I should have known that he was baiting me in that moment. I should have known that he was smarter than me. And this is why I've never answered questions in class ever again. But as I began to flip through the pages of my Bible, I could not find that story. I honestly don't know what happened in the rest of the class after that. I just thumbed through my Bible for an hour trying to find the story that I was so certain, that I was so sure was in the Bible. I knew this story. This was the answers that I had been taught my entire life, and I never found that story in the Old Testament because it's not in the Old Testament like I had supposed. Checkmate. I could hear my professor thinking in his head in our conversation. You see, the story of the devil being cast out, it is in the Bible, but it's not found in Genesis. It's actually found in Revelation chapter 12. But as it turns out, it has nothing to do with the creation stories and the fall of the devil from heaven and all these things. These story that I told myself my entire life, the story that I had told people my entire life, I incorrectly understood it. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're just, your incorrectness, if that's a word, and being wrong was just so public and in front of everybody and you just couldn't believe that you were wrong all along? Have you ever had to admit that to a spouse or to a teammate, to an employer, to an employee, that you were wrong? It's awkward and it's weird. Have you ever had to admit to being wrong about something in your faith? 
Maybe you misunderstood Jesus at one point in time in your life. Maybe you understood, misunderstood the Christian faith. Maybe you were wrong about God and what God is like at some point in your life. See, in our passage this morning, we discover a zealous Jewish man named Saul whose entire worldview and faith is both shattered and fulfilled in a single event, a single moment where he discovers that he had been wrong all along. An event where he realizes that he had been quite wrong about the person of Jesus. If you have a Bible, you can flip on over to Acts chapter 9. But before we read that story, here's a little bit of a background for you about the scripture this morning. The story focuses on this character that we know by the name of Saul. If you're unfamiliar with Saul, he is often referred to in the church today as Paul. He gets a little name change as he becomes a follower of Jesus. But he's the author who penned most of the New Testament. We would consider in our day uh, Saul to be an academic. He's well-educated in the Jewish faith. We might even call him a scholar. He studied under one of the most famous rabbis of his time, Gamaliel. In a religious sense, Saul was the most devout of Jewish men in his faith and in his world. But it's important for us to note that early Christian, the early Christian movement, it wasn't seen as a distinct kind of faith in the first century. You didn't have Jewish people and then Christian people. In the first century, from a Jewish theological perspective, Christ, the Christian movement felt like a heresy of their own faith or religion. Just imagine today if there was a church where the pastor was claiming to be God and claiming to be Christian. This is kind of how the Christian movement is perceived by the Jewish community in the first century. If that happened today, and it does happen today, we'd at the very least ignore that pastor and that church. We might even speak against that church but none of us would really take it seriously. And this is what's going on in the first century with the early Christian movement. In fact, Paul feels so zealous, so opposed to this Christian movement, to this disciples of Jesus, that he doesn't just speak against it. He's actually proactively persecuting it. He's, in the passage this morning, the Christian movement is referred to as the way, and Paul is actively participating and executing, in fact, participants of the way. In Acts chapter 7, a couple chapters before the text we're going to read this morning, Saul oversees the execution of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. And in our text this morning, we find Saul headed to Damascus, likely to extradite participants in the way, participants in the Christian movement to bring them back for trial in Jerusalem, a privilege granted them and Jewish leaders by the Roman Empire in the first century. And it's on this road to Damascus that Saul has a radical encounter with Jesus. And our text recounts it this way, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there would, who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? 
Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, this story is often referred to as Saul's conversion. In fact, in my Bible, and perhaps in the Bible that you're reading from this morning, the the sort of subtitle of the passage labels it as such. This is Saul's conversion. But that title might be a bit of a misnomer about what is actually happening. So when we think of conversion in the modern sense, we usually think of somebody who was an atheist or an agnostic who comes to believe in a particular faith or religion. Or we might even think of conversion as an experience where somebody was a part of this religion and then they sort of shift over into this religion over here. And there's a lot of debate as to whether or not this is what actually happens to Saul on the road to Damascus. You see, Saul was already a devoutly religious man. He's not an atheist or an agnostic. He would have told you that he was part of the people of God. He, in fact, believed in and did his best to obey the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, that Saul proclaimed and professed a loyalty to the same God that Jesus reveals to us. The bright light in the passage as Saul is journeying to Damascus is certainly a clue that God had arrived to meet with Saul. If you read your Bible, light or lightning is often the sort of symbol of God's presence with a person. And the repeated call of his name, Saul, Saul, would have struck Paul as what Jewish rabbis of the time called a bat ka'al. Bat Ka'al is a Hebrew that literally means daughter of the voice, or we might say daughter of the voice of God, that is an echo of God's voice. Rabbis taught in Saul's day that when there were no more prophets to hear the direct voice of God, the echo of his voice might still occasionally be heard by some. This is why when Paul hears his name echoed and repeated, he responds this way, Who are you, my Lord? 
Paul, in this moment, is ready to receive a word from the God he has followed all the days of his life. Perhaps he is even ready to share and maybe even brag about how zealous he is in his faith. And part of me just wonders, and this is a little bit of speculation on my part, if there was not a brief moment when Paul thinks that God is speaking to him in this moment as an affirmation of the persecution that he is bringing on the followers of Jesus. But Saul is sort of disoriented by the presence of God and the voice of God and the question that it asks to him, why are you persecuting me? Why am I persecuting you? What are you talking about? I follow you. I am loyal to you. I obey everything about you. So who are you, Lord? And the response he gets, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In a single moment, Paul's entire world and worldview is both shattered and fulfilled. It turns out that Paul had misunderstood God. It turns out that Paul had misunderstood Jesus. He was actually persecuting the God he thought he was serving. There was Coke in his Pepsi can, and he didn't even know it. Like every Bible student ever, he realized that he had misunderstood the scriptures because they were all pointing to Jesus. But this wasn't a gotcha moment for Jesus. He wasn't standing there hoping to confront and embarrass and humiliate Saul. He was standing there on that road. He was not standing there on that road with a prideful smirk wanting to embarrass Paul in front of his fellow travelers. Jesus, in fact, reveals himself to Paul, to Saul, so that he, Saul, might know the truth about who God is and who Jesus is. This story has so much to say to us as a church in 2020, and I just really want to note two things about it and how it applies to us in these days. The first thing is this. We, as a church, need to be humble about our convictions. We need to be humble about our convictions. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying we ought to have less conviction. God is revealed in the person, work, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But there are times, church, when our convictions have less to do with Jesus and more to do with our traditions and our opinions. And when they become that way, it's so easy for us to miss Jesus and his mission. See, what Paul discovered and what we ought to be reminded of constantly is our need to make Jesus central to our faith and our life. Things get really, really wacky in the church when Jesus isn't the most central thing for us to be pursuing. And we see this, frankly, in the church in North America today, we place a cause, we place a politician, we place a belief, we place an opinion or a conviction at the center of our faith and do our best just to affirm that thing that we've placed in the middle of it. But we ought to remind ourselves constantly that we need to measure our faith and life according to the person of Jesus, immersing ourselves in his teaching, immersing ourselves in relationship to him in prayer, immersing ourselves by reading the Gospels over and over and over again. This too is why it's important for us to be a part of a church community, 
just as Saul needed Ananias to get a little bit of clarity of what was going on, we need the faith community to teach and explain and to clarify life and faith so that we don't get out of whack and misalign with the purposes of God. If Saul, who was so zealous, who was a scholar, who devoted his entire life to honoring God, could get it so wrong, it might be possible that we get it wrong sometimes as well. And it is in relationship with Jesus that we find ourselves pulled back to what God is calling us to be and to become. But there's a second thing that I think this story sort of teaches to us in 2020, and it is this. We, as a church, need to be humble in our evangelism. We need to be humble in our evangelism. Several years ago, a mentor of mine had some Mormon missionaries come to his home, and he invited them to come back later that night uh, for a cup of coffee and just talk about faith and the things that they wanted to talk about. And once they accepted, he gave me a ring and invited me over to join the conversation as well. I don't know about you, but I've heard so many stories of Christian people who have their arguments or the Bible verses sort of armed and ready to go for those conversations to disprove and embarrass and to tell these folks who have come to their home about how wrong they are. And to be honest, I sort of thought this was what was going to happen when I was invited to have this conversation. My mentor probably knows his scriptures better than anyone else that I've known in my life, and he would certainly, if there was somebody, be able to lay down the smackdown on people when it came to Christian faith, if he so obliged himself to do. But we sat down that evening, and the first thing my mentor did as we started this conversation was ask those missionaries, those Mormon missionaries, can you share with us why you came to my house today? And they seemed shocked and a little bit nervous, like what is going on here? Uh, but they graciously began to share that they had come to the house just to share some truth about God and faith that they had discovered in their lives and that they wanted to share with us that we too might share in the joy that they've experienced in their religion and faith. In response, my mentor thanked them for their effort and said, you seem like people who sincerely want to know truth and you really want to know God, so much so that you've come to my house to share this good news with me. And Jesus is an important part of your faith. And as someone who also follows and has been following Jesus for a long time in my life, would it be okay for me to share with you what I've learned about Jesus? And they listened <laughs> earnestly. I'm not sure how those young men responded to that conversation about Jesus. I have no idea where they're at today. But we prayed for them after they left. But if their response to the truth about Jesus was anything like the response Paul had, it was life-changing for them and for those they encountered afterwards. When I got to think about just Paul's experience and the way Jesus interacts with him, I couldn't help but think of my mentor and the gracious way that he went about sort of teaching and revealing some truths about Jesus to people who sincerely wanted to know the truth, but we think may have gotten it a little bit wrong. Church, we cannot engage our world like interviewers trying to embarrass people who don't know Jesus. 
trying to prove some sort of point that they don't know what they're talking about and we totally know what we are talking about and, and we're right and you're wrong and I just want you to admit how wrong you are and how right I am when it comes to Jesus. See, the call for the church is to live in humility and reveal that Jesus, who is the Lord of lords, who is the Lord of the world, wants to be the Lord of their lives. And the conversations that we have with friends and neighbors and our community and coworkers can only ever be fruitful if we go about it the way Jesus did on that road to Damascus, proclaiming truth, but from a posture of humility. And for some of you who may be tuning in who do not believe in Jesus, I imagine there are many of you who perhaps have a deep value of things like truth, love, compassion, justice, ethics, and hope. And I imagine many of you don't just value these things, but they're central to the life that you live. I wonder if you might be open to what may seem like a crazy revelation this morning, though no crazier than the word that Paul received on that dirt road 2,000 years ago. That thing that you're pursuing in your life, that you're making central to your life, the thing that you're valuing, it's Jesus. It's Jesus and it's his kingdom. His kingdom is love. His kingdom is characterized by justice. Jesus brings real, actual hope in the world. Jesus brings compassion. Jesus is the one in whom we find the fulfillment of our heart's true desires. And it's Jesus who both shatters and fulfills our lives. And he will do the same for you. I wonder what would happen to our lives if we took this revelation about Jesus and his identity as seriously as Saul did on that dirt road. I wonder what would happen to our church community if we made Jesus the center of our faith and our worship and our discipleship. I wonder what would happen as a result in our city if Jesus was the most important thing that we pursued zealously in our faith. I wonder what would happen if we were able to focus our lives on the giver of all life. That's the kind of church I think <laughs> I want to be a part of. It's a church that I long to serve with. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus our Lord, <laughs> forgive us, God, for all the times that we have not made you, Jesus, central to what we're doing. I ask God that in our church, in my own life, in my own heart, <laughs> that you would be probing and correcting and all of the mistakes and errors and misunderstandings I have about who you are and about what you're calling me to. God, I ask that you would extend to me the humility that it took Paul <laughs> to recognize that he was wrong and to move in a different direction. We're grateful that you are patient with us that you extend to us the grace and mercy that we need to get some things right about you, about our faith, and about the world. And as we, as a church, stand with Paul in straightening out the crooked paths in our beliefs and our lives, 
May we too see your kingdom, Jesus, break into the world in new and surprising ways. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.